0: Welcome to the Dow of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C. Welcome to the Dow of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today we have Heidi and Marla and Craig. And Chris and Dennis and Sensei, good to have you today, sir. Glad you're here. Thank you for joining us. Good to be had. Good to be had. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that remains to be seen, so we'll see. (laughs) We'll be talking about the 21st verse of the Tao Te Ching, and Sensei's gonna shed some Zen light on this one today, I hope. So we'll. I think so. Yeah. Let's read a couple of versions. Uh, we have our announcements. Let's see, the zoomaa meetings.com. If you're looking for a 9 p.m. Eastern online meeting, buddyc.org has a bunch of resources, including this book, the books that we read here uh, on the podcast. Also has a daily DAO devotion that you can sign up for. I'm taking a lot of the uh, quotes that we use that apply to recovery and doing a, a quote and a thought and an affirmation associated with those. And those are pre-editor. I'm, I'm using that so that I can stay consistent about creating them. So I think I'm created through July 20th. So I've got to get busy, but good stuff. Lots of good resources for you. Good resources page there too, for with all kinds of other resources associated with the recovery too. So. Great thing to use for your sponsees or even for your sponsor if they're in need of it. So, Craig, which one you want to read today, sir?
1: I'll read the Gifu Fang. So verse 21, the greatest virtue is to follow Tao and Tao alone. The Tao is elusive and intangible. Oh, it is intangible and elusive. And yet within is image. Oh, it is elusive and intangible, and yet within is form. Oh, it is dim and dark, and yet within is essence. This essence is very real, and therein lies faith. From the very beginning until now, its name has never been forgotten. Thus, I perceive the creation. How do I know the ways of creation? Because of this.
0: Thank you, sir. Uh, This is the Stephen Mitchell translation of the 21st verse. The master keeps her mind always at one with the Tao. That is what gives her her radiance. The Tao is ungraspable. How can her mind be at one with it? Because she doesn't cling to ideas. The Tao is dark and unfathomable. How can it make her radiant? Because she lets it. Since before time and space were the Tao is, it is beyond is and is not. How do I know this is true? I look inside myself and I'll put the link up again here for anyone that came in later after I posted it in the chat. Uh, Sensei, do we want to read
2: one of the other translations that we use? let Let me read Jonathan Starr from the book. I just came back from my eye exam, so my eyes are diluted. Everything is very radiant right now, so it must be the dial <laughs> in a chemical form.
3: Yeah.
2: Perfect. And, and, and what struck me is the difference just between this one and the Dyer. You know, those are the two I have plus the one we have online. Uh, again, Dyer is very, very short, and uh, they're quite different this time. Perfect action. True virtue, supreme power. This is how Dao is revealed through those who follow it completely. Through form, though formless and intangible, it gives rise to form. Though vague and elusive, it gives rise to shapes. Though dark and obscure, it is the spirit, the essence, the life breath of all things. But is it real? You ask. I say its evidence is all of creation. From the first moment to the present, the name has been sounding. It is the gate through which the universe enters this witness by which the universe sees, the witness by which the universe sees. How have I come to know all this? The very capital N name very name capital N has told me the name which is sounding right here right now so I have some comments on these I think we have another version let's read the dire version if you want yes that would be great. It says uh, the greatest virtue is to follow the Tao and the Tao alone very similar the Tao is elusive and intangible Although formless and intangible, it gives rise to form. Although vague and elusive, it gives rise to shapes. Although dark and obscure, it is the spirit, the essence, the life, breath of all things. So those are virtually the same, those two. And throughout the ages, its name has been preserved in order to recall the beginning of all things. How do I know the ways of all things at the beginning? I look inside myself and see what is within me. So this all sounds very Zen. <laughs> of course, Taoism was one of the sources of Zen in China. And say, what's some of
0: your thoughts? Well,
2: have... let's go back to uh, Dao De Ching, the uh, Jonathan Starr version, where he says, perfect action, true virtue, supreme power. This is how the Tao is revealed through those who follow it completely. So one of the older versions of the vows we take is, uh, however innumerable all beings are, I vow to uh, save them all. However inexhaustible my delusions are, I vow to extinguish them all. However innumerable the Dharma teachings are, I vow to master them all. However endless the great way is, I vow to follow it completely. So, right within the uh, vows, the four great vows they're called, you have this exact same language. However, uh, infinite, really, the the great way is I've followed it completely. So, those are vows uh, that we take or that we voice, understanding that they're basically impossible in a literary, in a literal sense. But they aspire, inspire our aspiration to, you know, give it the old college try to do it anyway, and then when we fail to pick ourselves up and do it again. Dogen had this famous expression, fall down seven times, get up eight. So you might, one of the colons associated is, uh, why didn't he just say get up seven? Why did he say get up eight? So and then it goes on. though though formless and intangible, it gives rise to form. So this is like form and emptiness in Buddhism, Buddha's original teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And uh, the form is, I I use the word innately. Form is innately emptiness, emptiness innately form. In other words, there are two things that you cannot put on opposite sides of an equation and, and consider them equal. They can't be separated even that much. And there's a mathematical symbol for that, which I'm, I'm not familiar with. Um, it gives rise to form. So, this is the idea that the invisible force behind everything that we experience and uh, the appearance of the world to us is what we call form. Emptiness is what we call its essence. So, I think a simple way to think of it is like matter and energy. We know that matter seems to be solid and so forth, but but the scientists, physicists tell us it's a form of impounded energy. And when you look at it under an electron microscope and so forth, which they didn't have in these days back in China or Japan. But when you do, when you examine things closely, you see that it falls apart into particular particular components, atoms, molecules, et cetera, all all the stuff we know, which they did not know in these days. So they're pointing at something on an intuitive level, it is formless and intangible, yet it gives rise to form. So they, in their meditation and their training, their understanding, maybe they took drugs, who knows. They had big pharmacopias all throughout Asia. Uh, They saw through this reality and they saw something underlying, which was radiant, energetic. So they could intuitively, uh, find, it's not a sensory experience, as as it says elsewhere in in these teachings, it's not exactly an object of perception, as Dogen put it, but it changes your perception. So I get the idea that they just were so intense in their practice and the times were so hard that they just had transformative experiences like epiphany, and they could see the radiant nature of reality, They they could hear it, they could feel it. And uh, that's our training in Zen is like, that's all sensory. Uh, the very first line, first of the lines, several first of the lines in the heart sutra says, given emptiness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, no seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. It doesn't mean the absolute absence of that. It just means not the way you think they are. Yeah. Our senses are different. Let me different interrupt from, you
0: for a second. Yeah, Let me interrupt yeah. you for a second. Craig, Craig's got a comment or a question.
1: You're muted. Apparently, I was muted. So I was. I was just gonna. I was just wanting to comment on um, what Sensei just said about having that one focal point, just being in that one practice, and not diverging from another path. We have a saying over here that you can be a jack of all trades and be a master of none. So I'm kind of meddling all my hands in in different pies, and you know, I'm not really. uh, I'm, I'm not really a master of any of them. Um, and and somebody else, I heard this one recently as well it's better to produce one masterpiece than it is to produce thousand levels of mediocre so if we really concentrate on what's right in front of us then I I think we would I I know I personally would benefit from not getting so distracted I I think we're in an age now where there are so many distractions, I've got my phone here I've got stuff going on in the background, I've got stuff going on outside and we just really have so many distractions. I, I think we've lost the art of actually coming in and just doing, doing nothing. I think the the Dalai Lama in his, his book the, um, is the 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 Joy of Happiness um, he mentions just is that there's, there's so few people that can actually just come in and sit with themselves, they have to have a distraction like a TV going on in the background or music going on because they just, they're used to that level of distraction.
2: Well, there was a survey conducted, uh, and people said about what are you most afraid of, and they were most afraid of being alone with their thoughts. That mm-hmm. was the big number one. So Dogen says things like that. He says doing one practice is practicing completely, and but it doesn't mean that you only do one thing. Obviously, you have to do multiple things to to live and to do anything. But there's another uh, trope or expression about it, like if you want to find water, uh, would you drill a lot of shallow wells or drill one deep well? And anybody who's ever been around well water knows you drill one deep well, right? So Zen is like that, Taoism is like that. It's not so much uh, rejecting all the various multiplicity of things that we have to do on a daily basis. It's just seeing them as all the same practice. They're all the same practice. Variations on it. So let sir, me run through this. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead with what you have, and then I have. I'll a just comment. run through this. Question. Okay, keep your thought. So it gives rise to form. So they had this intuitive sense that something is behind everything, and we call it, in Zen we call it emptiness or the Tao. Uh, through though vague and elusive, it gives rise to shapes, the dark and obscure, and so forth. But is it real? I say it's evidence is all of creation. So it sounds like God, you know, and in our milieu, it doesn't matter if you call it God or not, it it really is simply semantics, you can call it whatever you want. We don't argue the existence of God or non-existence of God. But uh, it's like an extra word, we have this cosmic Buddha idea that the universe is the cosmic Buddha's body, and everything else is manifestations of this Buddha nature, which means being awake or conscious, which is referred to here. So then from the first moment to the present, the name has been sounding. It sounds, again, like the word right in the Bible. The word uh, was the beginning of creation. And this guy, Wayne Dyer, apparently is Christian because he uses a lot of Christian references in his text. It is the gate through which the universe enters the witness by which the universe sees. Now, Okamura Roshi, one of my teachers, Japanese uh, Zen, and he said, We, we human beings, we and all sentient beings, really, but particularly human beings, we are the uh, universe becoming conscious of itself. So, sort of the miracle of life, the miracle of consciousness, nobody understands or can explain this. Christ uh, religions, re- religious uh, belief systems have the myth of creation, this and that. They try to explain it, but I think, uh, you know, if you nailed them down, they would admit that there's a certain level of just don't know, agape, you know, uh, awe, uh, awestruck, uh, the miracle of existence. Nobody can fully explain. Uh, How have I come to know all this? The very name has told me the name, which is sounding right here, right now. And then the other one, they say... uh, how do I know? I look inside myself and see what is within me. So these two things are not in, comp- in competition with each other. Name and form, nama rupa, uh, form is usually connected to name, meaning uh, we name things uh, like the floor, the wall, the coffee cup, the tea, what this, that, and uh, then we think we know them by having named them. So uh, somewhere the Tao says, and Buddy, you guys would know more than I, says something like, uh, naming is the source of all particular things, but that which is eternally real is nameless. So we recognize the the duality of language uh, in Taoism, Buddhism, probably in most religions, that. You cannot really capture this in words because the language itself is dualistic. So the very names we use especially, and this especially applies to your self-identity, we don't self-identify as Buddhists. As I often say, Buddha was not a Buddhist. Christ was not a Christian. Uh, What grew up around them and what followed is what we call Buddhism and Christianity, but that's not what they were. They were as we are. And there's an old line in uh, one of the, Zen poem says, Buddhas and ancestors of old, were as we, we in the future shall be Buddhas and ancestors. So there's a self-identity that doesn't have any particular form to it that we call Buddha nature. It is formless because it is shared by everything. Everything is an example of it. So well, these things are very close to, to Buddhist or Zen principles in this particular verse.
0: And say I was, uh, or oh, you have something,
3: Chris? Uh, no, I mean, well, so many things have come to mind that's hard to know what to ask. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm, I'm thinking of things we name that don't have necessarily have form, uh, sort of intangible things like maybe, for example, behavior of people. You know, we, we describe characteristics of things. Um, blue doesn't have form, does it? I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it what, does. What doesn't yeah. have
2: form? Blue, the color blue. Or, oh, blue, right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. Sokayan was a Renzai master who came over with Sho and Shaku in late 1800s for the first Convocation of World Religions, where for the first time Buddhism was introduced to the West. I think it was held in Chicago. And then apparently uh, So and Shaku directed uh, Sokayan, who was a student, to either stay behind or come back because he ended up forming the New York Zen Institute. And he published a column called The Cat's Cat's Yawn. And uh, he was known for a lot of things. But he he had this one analogy that he used. He said, the cat, the dog, and uh, the chicken, the dog, and the person all see the fire hydrant. He's in New York, right? and he said but only only the person sees the red so where is the red and he used this to define two different kinds of what are called dharmas dharmas are understood as beings or truths reality dharma means teachings it has a lot of meanings but in this case it's referring to a, a particle as a dharma or a cat as a dharma or a dog or you or i or this house or anything as a dharma being it has its lo- a dharma location in space time which nothing else occupies so um he said um, the 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 fire hydrant is is an example of a real and existent dharma you kick it with your toe you'll hurt your toe you know but he said the red is a real but non-existent dharma in other words, if I say red, you know what I mean. And you know I could point out this wall behind me is red and you'd say, yes, that's red, it looks red. And something in your own room that looks red. But we know that it's, it would be impossible for any two of us to see the same color actually because we're all constructed slightly differently. Close enough for jazz, right? And, I, mm-hmm. and unless you're colorblind, you're not gonna confuse green and red or blue and red and so forth. But he said, uh, where is the red? It doesn't exist for the chicken or the dog. And so it's a real but non-existent dharma. And we know that if we take the electron microscope again and put the fire hydrant under it, we begin to see that what we consider real and existent dharmas are also real but non-existent in the sense that they're mostly space, uh, energy, and that they are ever-changing and impermanent over time. So it's interesting that you chose the color blue. But this goes to the, the skanda, what is called mental formations. You have in uh, or, and perception, but you have the five skandhas. It starts with form or the material world. That's the grossest basic level. And then it goes to sensation. So when you're sitting in meditation long enough, the boundary between your butt and the cushion becomes fuzzy, turns into sensation. And then it goes into perception and conception, middle skanda, then what is called mental formations, motive, impulse, desire, etc. And finally, consciousness itself is the fifth of all the skandhas. So you would put blue uh, in that area of perception where we identify a color vibration, which modern physics tells us is the amount of the spectrum of light that is absorbed by the surface and the amount that is reflected and the wavelengths, right? So a red fire hydrant is going to reflect a different wavelength than is a blue sweater. And uh, that's how the quote blue, that's where the blue exists, but it's not really findable because it isn't, it doesn't have a location. It's somewhere between our perception and the object and the light reflecting off the object. It's a very elusive thing. But that is what is called a real but non-existent dharma. And uh, the Indians, you know, they had a model for all of this. They, they they could talk about it, but you know, they didn't have any more solid answer than you or I have. <laughs> hey, Chris, you have anything else, sir?
0: No, thank you. That's very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heidi. Oh, you were you're muted, dear.
3: There um. So I don't know if you have like. Time to do this, but I I was like looking up um duality and I don't understand it, and I was wondering if maybe he could give like a quick rundown.
0: The difference between <laughs> duality and non duality. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. what time you
2: got? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see. The simplest thing would be you. Uh, you are now perceiving. Us on your monitor, and you are you, and us is us, and uh, that's the same for all of us. And uh, so there's this separation, there's this seeming duality. But on the other hand, uh, you are not separate from this conversation. So on the other hand, you're also you're part of it. So a simple analogy might be the skin. We, we think of the skin as separating us from everything else, right? This is where I am, everything else begins. But the skin also connects us to everything else. So it, it works both ways. It's a two-way street kind of thing. Um, we emphasize the duality in our education system, our jobs, our training. It's all bit about logical thinking and learning to control of the universe, there's a line in a Chinese poem that says, existing phenomenally like box and cover joining. And I put the word but in there, but, however, uh, according with principle, like arrow points meaning. So this is posing the two. This is like saying duality is what we understand. It's the way we think. The nature of language is itself dual. You can't say all the truth. You can only say half of it. If I say cold, I'm already saying hot, but I'm not saying hot. I'm saying cold, but you can't have cold without hot. If I say light, it's already saying dark. Okamura Roshi said, when you say form, you're already saying emptiness. When you say emptiness, you're already saying form. Well, this is, you know, in a dualistic Western uh, culture, this is uh, difficult to get our head around, and I, I don't think anybody understands it. I don't think anybody really gets it. It's, it's a mystery. But um, this duality versus non-duality comes down to, finally, all of these uh, dyads or what do we call them today? What's the computer word for it? It's like binaries, right? All of these things sort of subsume into one big glob of all of these ideas in which you have something opposed to something else. And they're typically opposite ends of the extreme of a spectrum on which all these other intervals exist, like color is on a spectrum, sound is on a spectrum, et cetera. Now we say gender diversity, gender is on a spectrum, et cetera. So um, because the language is dualistic, you can only sort of talk about half of it at a time. You can't talk about the other part. If you say cold, it's already implying warm. Whatever feels cold has to be warmer than the cold it's feeling. The baby in the womb is the same temperature as the womb, so it doesn't feel the temperature. And that's the other point of it. Cold and warm subsume into a larger category called temperature. And all of these duels are like that. All these dyads are things that seem to be opposites are really complementary, like the yin and yang symbol, the black and white, uh, rotating and there's a line in the poem says, says, uh, There's darkness in light, but do not take it as darkness. There's light in darkness, but do not see it as light. Light and dark oppose one another, like the front and back foot in walking. So the front and back foot in walking are always becoming their opposite. The front foot is becoming the back foot, and the back foot is becoming the front foot. So it's like the yin-yang cycle. Everything is like that, and so... The unification and non-duality comes about through this. And the last line of uh, trust in mind says, uh, living in this faith is the road to non this trust, trust in mind, mind with a big M, is the road to non-duality because the non-dual is one with the trust in mind. So we have to kind of give up our logic and give up our analysis and our anxiety to sort of embrace this idea with a trusting mind, for the non-duality of our, our world to become apparent. And med- meditation does that. You sit still enough, long enough, you're pushing that envelope, it's going to break that down, and you're going to come into a, as Dogen says, in stillness, in deep, deep stillness and meditation, in stillness, mind and object merge in realization, go beyond enlightenment. So, mind and object are one of the fundamental dualities. I was saying in the beginning, you 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 see yourself as separate from, but aware of all the rest of us on this call, and each of us see that same way. But in stillness, mind and object merge uh, in realization and go beyond enlightenment. So, actually, we're not separate. We're not entirely separate, I should say.
0: Heidi, have you heard me? uh, talk about the hand to the body. Um, okay. Yes. You, yeah. You've experienced the oneness because you, you, the great thing is you don't have to understand it for it for you to benefit from the oneness. You don't, you're, you don't have to have a, an understanding. I don't know if you can have an understanding of this. I don't know. If, I don't think that's possible, but you can know it. Okay. And you don't even have to know it. For it to benefit you, all you have to do is take the action, and you've been benefiting from the oneness since you've been sober for sure. Uh, because uh, when you got into into recovery, and you were told to, uh, if you wanted to get over a resentment, to pray for that person that you resented. Okay, uh, that's the same thing as let's say my hand did not realize it was part of the body and it was talking to the other hand and it said you know I don't understand it there were there was this food this food in front of me I picked up this uh, apple and I put it up to this mouth and this mouth ate it. the mouth did nothing for me and and I don't understand but I felt better like the nutrition <laughs> came through the body right? And so the hand being part of the body, in the same way, when when we uh, show love and kindness or love to another person, like in our resentments, when we pray for that person, or or we learn in recovery that nothing immune you against a drink as much as working with another alcoholic, that's the same thing. You're helping the body, so in turn you're being helped yourself at the same time. So that is, uh, I think that's that oneness, or that's the way I understand it to be.
2: Uh, It's also interconnectedness as well, interconnectedness. Yeah, yeah. There's a Uh, wonderful uh, story in Zen about these gourds, all these gourds. And Okamura wrote a children's, had put together a children's book about it, and all these gourds are talking to each other and relating to each other like we are. And one day they notice the vine. (laughs) (laughs) they didn't notice that
0: (laughs) Uh, that's just like looking at the hand is the hand the body no is the hand part of the body yes you see what you know you see what I'm saying that it's for me it's that same kind of uh, the same kind of understanding but I had a question for do you have anything else Heidi OK, thank you. I have a question for Sensei. You mentioned back, Sensei, when we we're talking about the end of that second stanza, uh, I say it's evidence is all of creation. And you, I, if I remember correctly, you said that uh, in Zen, you don't look at that. You look at that creation as emptiness.
2: Did I no, hear you I, it's, it's both. That's uh, now, Nowadays, we have this trope. Both things can be true at the same time. So that's the way I think we approach emptiness and form: is that they're both true at the same time. They're not competing with each other. They're not competitive ideas. Things exist by nature of emptiness, by virtue of emptiness. Change.
3: Mm-hmm. Emptiness
2: is change, impermanence, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how things exist. The question then is not whether things are real or not, but or whether they exist or not, but how they exist. It's more a scientific question. And how they exist is by nature of impermanence, ever changing. This year's garden dies and becomes compost for next year's. This year this generation has to die off to make room for the next generation to come along of each species. Another good one on the hands is since they explained the bow, the Buddhist bow, this bow, not a prayer, not, not a worship form, but it's more he said this hand represents the person we don't like and we're trying to improve or get rid of or whatever this person, uh, this hand represents the ideal. In Buddhism, it's the Buddha nature, We, we aspire to the Buddha nature. He said they're coming together like this illustrates that they're not separate, they're just one thing, they're parts of the same body as the hands seem to be separate, but they're actually just part of the same being. And so the Buddha nature we awaken means awakened nature we aspire to is the same as the nature we have to work with, what we, the material we have to work with. And by the way, it's the same as what Buddha had to work with. So when I bow to you, it means I recognize your Buddha nature, same as mine. Then we use it as a form of respect, entering the zendo and so forth, appreciation for the ability to practice. And the other dualistic side of things that is often used as a, as an analogy is this hand can grasp everything except itself. And grasping itself, that's when we move into the non dual.
0: Sensei, on the last stanza in the Star Translation, how have I come to know all this? Yep. That yep. very name has told me that name, which is sounding right here, right yes. now. Like it's bringing us to the moment. Uh, so
2: I've been thinking about that, it. A if, Go ahead, I'm sorry. You know, many forms of meditation, including Zen, emphasize deep listening. And the way I think about it, this same idea, is uh, dukkha is this kind of profound concept from Buddhism, probably came from Hinduism or Vedic, uh, but it means we translate it as suffering, which is kind of a poor translation. It's a very human-centric translation, suffering, and oh, poor baby, poor me, you know. But it's more change. As I often say, galaxies colliding are dukkha. It's impersonal. It's a universal principle. The existence of suffering is universal in scope. But we get caught up in it as human beings. We address it as suffering. We complain, you know, we don't like it. We'd we'd rather things not change that we don't want to change. And we'd rather some things change that seem stubbornly refuse to change. So, if you think of it as change rather than suffering, then you have to uh, recognize that every sound you hear, including the sound of my voice, my hearing the sound of your voice, sound of cars going by or tinnitus and internal sounds we hear, every one of those sounds is a sound of change. If nothing changed, you wouldn't hear anything. Same for seeing, same for feeling. So everything we feel here and and uh, see is change. If the light wasn't bouncing off these surfaces and hitting my retina, I wouldn't see anything. If if the vibrations in the environment that are compressing the air, you know, creating sound or going through the headphones, I wouldn't hear anything. So I think it's a very simple thing to wake up to that. Everything you experience, Heidi John, that's, that's change. Everything is change. And so we are hearing the sound of dukkha at all times. We are feeling the sensation of dukkha at all times. We're seeing dukkha at all times. We're, it's, it's ever, the ever present reality. It's not a special thing called suffering that we don't like. It's just change. And in doing that, you, you see that Any sound you hear is this name or this the word of God. Every sound you hear is reality manifesting itself in sound. Thank you, Sensei. Oh,
0: by the way, Heidi, if you ever want to know if someone's, if you're in a room with a lot of people, my daughter told me about this. She said that if uh, if you ever want to know if anybody's checking you out and you're like at a party or something, yawn. And then anyone that yawns was checking you out. So uh feel free to use that sometime if you're ever there. So I wonder who's checking me out. Do a big yawn and take a look around and see. And if nobody yawns, you you'll be depressed.
3: <laughs> sure not, right?
4: I have to say that body he yawns a lot around nine AM. It just comes to him there. I don't know if this is a sleep pattern or what. <laughs>
0: Yeah, when I come over to, to meet with you, uh, it, it gets me out of bed super early on Wednesdays. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm already yawning at that time. Yeah, Dennis, thank you. Uh, anyone else got a comment for sincere or question? Uh, Chris?
3: Well, uh, a comment on this thing of impermanence. I mean, I guess in sobriety, we're told to accept things as they are. And so you start your day off and you say, well, I'm going to do this and this and this today. Is you're bound to to have trouble. You basically have to say, you know, that uh, things are going to change. Um, what is changing today? Right. right. Um, and yet we crave constancy, don't we? We build houses strong yep. so that yep. we can always come back to our house. Um yep. Yep. Yeah.
2: You think? I think I'm an amateur musician, and uh, we have a lot of musicians in the in the community, the Sangha. And uh, so we, we uh, tend to think, sort of translate these concepts from Buddhism into musical analogies and so forth. And one would be polyrhythm. Um, everything is changing, but apparently at different rates. Um, that is, the mountains don't change as quickly as the trees on the mountains. The trees drop their leaves and grow, and et cetera, et cetera. And the mountains seem to stay. Relatively constant, so it's like uh, a cacophony of different rhythms, polyrhythms going on at all times, and they're synchronous with each other. Uh, every every once in a while, they come around and they hit. You know, now we say, okay, now it's winter. You know, so it's like there's a commonality. So I don't think we can interpret change as being uh, all equal and the same. It's it's variable, like a symphony. You know, or like um, it's like music. It's more like music than mathematics mm-hmm. or something. Even though mathematics and music are the same, but chaos. You know, we look at chaos as a higher form of order. It's just a more complex order than we can comprehend, and yet we still sense that there's an. Under, it has to be an underlying order.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: There's a Chris. There's a Taoist phrase that talks about, and I'm going to. It's not word for word, but. Uh, can we let go of uh, what has died so that we can grasp the new thing that's coming, you know, because uh, we want to hold on to things, you know? Uh, and I think that's a big part of recovery is learning how to accept the moment for what the moment is, you know, and being okay with that. Um, and that don't, for me, that only comes from letting go of my fears of things, not being, you know, of, uh, of if if things not, of uh, things harming, you know, all my fears of uh, financial insecurity and all the other things, uh, I'll try to hold on to things because of my fears. So it helps when I work through the steps and surrender a lot of those fears, I can, I can be more accepting
2: of the moment. Uh, Dennis. But I, The idea of trust runs through all of these teachings that we have. You know, Mark Twain was asked at the end of his life, Wasn't he afraid of dying? He said, how could I be afraid of returning to where I came from? You think about it, you know, we celebrate birth and we mourn death, and it doesn't really make any sense. They're both inflection points in life. I mean, you can imagine living eternally. You can imagine that. Would you really want to? (laughs) That's another question.
4: Mm. Uh, Uh, more. (laughs) Yes. I was... um, I was just thinking about uh, what we talked about yesterday from Katie Byron. That really that's another way of, of saying the Tao and all that, that you fall in love with what is. And I could see that especially in the second stanza and what we're talking about here, both with duality and and, and um how it, it, it merges. It merges when I become aware that, that my perception always needs that contra thing i can't have anything good without the bad and and so on that's how i yes. the simplest way i can understand uh, the duality if, if i externalize it and i say i can't understand the light without darkness um, yes. and so on and we can kind of make that very confusing uh, in, in a long explanation but if i accept yes. it yes. for what it is then i can kind of narrow it down, which comes a lot through, through stillness of the mind, I'm guessing. And, uh, and in, in, in
2: Zen practice in daily life, uh, I, I come to emphasize the, the idea of vacillation, that uh, the mind tends to work by vacillating between extremes. <laughs> and you can't really know the middle or the mean without going to extremes. Hmm. The, the metaphor that's used is the airplane with two computers, and the airplane leaves land and lands in Seattle. But ninety-nine percent of the time, it's off course, and one computer is telling the other we're off course, and the other computer is correcting. So it's like a sine wave. So if we accept the vacillation as part of the way we work, then we don't mind so much when we're down uh, or when we're manic, you know, bipolar, up and down, all the roller coaster. We recognize that that's that is the way it works, and so the only thing, the only thing is really to correct, to and. and just recognizing it, you automatically correct it's when we get to the point that we don't recognize that we're off the beam. <laughs> you know they can get problematic.
0: yeah, somebody asked me if they thought if I thought they were crazy, I said, well, I said someone who's crazy uh they don't ask that question, <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, the question is, and Buddhism is or this whole whole thing about enlightenment is. For a truly enlightened person, can enlightenment exist?
3: Hmm.
2: How could it?
0: Sensei, isn't uh, enlightenment just uh, being present
2: in this moment, fully present? I think that's that's more along the lines of awareness or uh, what's called bare awareness. Exactly. And in Zen, we have this phrase, the sickness of falling into the moment. So just being in the moment doesn't mean everything is cool. Your whole life may be falling apart all around you, and you're simply not paying attention. But you're still in the moment.
4: <laughs> but, why so, is that being called a sickness? By the way, why do because, that's, that's interesting? It, it's a sickness to fall into the moment, but that's the beautiful uh, part of it. Yeah, right? yeah,
2: because it tends to ignore consequences through the three times, cause and effect, causality in the three times, karmic karmic consequence. Um, you 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 cannot. Escape uh, consequences simply by staying in the moment. You know that's you know it's it's taught as a palliative or a corrective because mostly we're distracted, we're thinking in the future, planning, and we're regretting the past, and we're not in the moment. But uh, simply coming into the moment is is not it. That's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Embracing in the moment those things that are consequences that we may not like. You know, it's part of it. Part of that accepting
0: the moment for what it is. And that would be. Yes. yes. Right.
2: Yes. Shenmue Suzuki said something interesting. He was pressed by David Chadwick. To explain Zen in a bumper sticker, you know, just briefly. And he said, things as it is. Another one he said was everything changes. But he said things as it is. Now, that's incorrect English. So it doesn't mean things as they are. It means things as they really are. Things as it is. In other words, things as reality is. Everything included. Um, and yet, we, we we think we know that, but we don't know it exactly. This is the, another dualistic conundrum. Until we penetrate through our own sort of self-ego-driven um. Projection of our reality. You know, we all know from brain science that we're sort of projecting this reality. It's not exactly as we perceive it. And Dogen makes the point: this is not an does not this all this, however, does not appear within perception because it is unconstructedness in stillness. It is immediate realization. So the way I think about it is, it comes from behind and changes our perception, so to speak. So it's not something that we necessarily register as perception. That's, that's what they're trying to get at here by saying, though vague and elusive, right? Sensei says, round and rolling, slippery and slick, you know, like a bar of soap. You try to grasp it. You can't grasp it. If you stop grasping, then it embraces like incense smoke. You try to grasp the incense smoke, it evades your grasp. If you stop grasping, then it embraces your palm. So this is the difficult thing to do, to stop, you know, to stop our knee-jerk compulsive and
4: sit back, let it come to us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dennis? Isn't, um, this is also a question for Sensei, isn't the awareness the consciousness and the other way around also, so consciousness is the awareness? Does that make any sense? Yeah, consciousness
2: uh, applies to earthworms. You know, it applies probably to viruses to some degree, you know, it's a broad, broad, broad term. And the, all beings, all sentient beings who have senses are have a degree of awareness. And we, we think we're on the top of the food chain and we have more awareness than any, any other sentient being, especially self-awareness, but there clearly are birds and other animals that see, see much broader spectrum than we do. They see infrared ultraviolet. Dogs have much better smell than we have cats and so forth and whales, who knows dolphins and octopus, octopi or octopuses, whatever they are called. So um, awareness, the kind of awareness we approach in our meditative practice is often called bear awareness, meaning it has been stripped down of all of its predilections, preconceptions, Etc. And it's just, it's like re- a regression, like returning to childhood. When you're three or four years old, you didn't have much going on up here. You know, but you were fully conscious and you were aware of everything and your awareness was very sharp and you were processing an awful lot of information on a subliminal level, but you didn't have language. You didn't have concepts, you didn't have words, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So that's the fundamental original mind that is extremely powerful. And we have learned to trust our analytical aspect of that mind, get the good grades, get the good jobs, compete, and so forth. And that's basically the way we make cultural evolution work, the box and cover joining. We've learned to control our environment to the point that we've over-controlled it, and now we may be destroying the environment, you know, by our, quote, control of it. So this idea in meditation is you relinquish all of that and you return to a more primordial kind of mind, which is always there, has always been there. and uh, But in most cases, it's not very highly valued in art and music and other places. Intuition is uh, credited and valued. But we've definitely gotten out of balance. We're way over on the side of cheetah or discriminating mind, monkey mind, we call it. And the intuitive side, Bodhi mind, wisdom, mind is sort of pushed into the background. So we think the meditative process helps bring that back into better balance. It, does that answer that your question?
4: Sense? Yeah, a little bit. I, I was just seeing if, if it emerged together, and I think that's what I'm getting out of the the that uh, that you can be aware of the consciousness, and, and awareness is the consciousness. I you could
2: you can be conscious of. The other five are called form, feeling, thought, impulse, and, consci- and consciousness. So you could say consciousness is sort of the uber conda or uber aggregate. You are aware of form, conscious of form. You are conscious of sensation. You are conscious of perception and conception. You're conscious of motive, desire, um, underlying everything, right? So Consciousness is kind of the uber aggregate that can be conscious of the other four. But the the principle in meditation is that you sort of leave leave them all behind gradually until you find yourself sitting in consciousness only, is the way it's described. So consciousness is conscious of consciousness. So consciousness is studying consciousness through consciousness and not really any more analyzing perception, form, feeling, and so forth. It's consciousness becoming aware of consciousness itself. And that would be what something akin to bare awareness, where everything else has fallen away. And now we're back to sort of an original state of
4: mind. That makes sense. I got it there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Any any other questions for Sensei before we close? We're coming up on the hour. A couple of hands go up, and then they went down. Either one of you guys still have questions, Greg? Don't start him up again. I, <laughs>
1: yeah. I, 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 I was just checking on Heidi. Just make sure you, just make sure you got that, Heidi.
0: It's fucking
3: lit, man. I, I'm like, I'm off. I'm like feeling so relaxed. It's the best.
1: If somebody had asked me <laughs> breathe, to describe. Breathe, breathe, breathe. <laughs> if I was asked to describe the difference between the duality and the non-duality, I would have pretended my camera froze. And then, silent. Then then just quickly, just exited the meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for for your time, Sensei. As as always, it's been absolutely fantastic.
0: You are our favorite guest. You're our only guest, but you're our favorite still.
1: If we had another one, you would still be the best,
0: (laughs) Chris. You have something. Tell everybody to buy my book. (laughs) Uh, Follow my follow my podcast on mine. I'll still have the link up for both in in the notes, Uh, Chris. You have something, yeah. Once, to well, yeah. I think. Well, and I, it's an
3: idea. I with meditation and being in the moment. It's the only way I can really know what to do next. What's the next best thing? Uh, so right. since right. since it gets me out of thinking in the future or in the, in yep. the past, right? It's the best tool okay. for. And you know, even in
2: complicated situations like the last four podcasts or so have been about this: the mass shootings, the school shootings. Hmm. And all of that, even in situations like that, and I'm I'm correlating design thinking and Zen, where in design thinking, the whole issue is to define the problem thoroughly. And don't leap to a solution, but spend your time defining the problem. And if you thoroughly define the problem, probably the best solution will be inherent in the definition Hmm. And so I think Zen is very much like that. Buddha defined the problem of existence, you know, and and he he called it Dukkha, the middle way and so forth. And unfortunately, we translate those into limited ideas like suffering. So but I think Buddha was like a master designer. You know, he built he built a program and he built a, a community around this idea. He didn't go against the political system of the time notice notice, that he didn't do that like Jesus did but he uh but he he built an alternative and invited people to join him in that alternative and that's very much a design prototype approach
4: so I think there's a lot of
2: parallels between design thinking and Zen since do you have you done any study on
0: there's a a, a large belief that uh, Jesus between the ages of twelve and twenty nine yeah went and studied Buddhism.
2: And there's some books and there's it's a lot of all- It's like four mm-hmm. missing years or something. But I think that long ago, there had to be a lot of missing years in the record. And uh, the, the-, the theory was that he was close enough to the Silk Road that he got exposed to Buddhism.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and the, the ideas he brought back and taught were more Buddhist ideas than they
2: were Jewish yeah. ideas. There's a really good book that you guys might want to look up. It's called The Zen Teachings of Jesus. And it was written by a Zen priest who was also a Jesuit, if I recall correctly. It's not a new book. It's been out. I read it a long, long time ago. But I think he went back to the original translations or the original Greek or something, went back as far as he could, and he tried to communicate what Jesus actually said. And he illustrates how close they are to. A lot of the teachings of Buddha.
0: Well, if there's nothing else, guys, any other quick questions? We it's time to close. Since thank you today, sir, we appreciate you. We all have a great week then, and we will see you next week. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app. Daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Dow of Our Understanding recovery
4: podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.